0: You are listening to the Inside Citywide podcast, brought to you by the New York City Department of Citywide Administrative Services. Inside Citywide provides you with a behind-the-scenes look at some of the work we do to serve the people of New York City. Welcome to the first episode of Inside Citywide. I'm Nick Benson. I'm the Director of Communications at DCAS, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today. For those of you who don't know about DCAS, we provide shared services to support the operations of New York City government. So that includes everything from overseeing the city's civil service system, managing 56 municipal buildings, purchasing many of the supplies and equipment used by city government, and so much more. DCAS is really the backbone of city government and the resources and support provided by DCAS empower all other city agencies to deliver on their missions. It's through the unique lens of DCAS and its work that we hope to give you a behind-the-scenes look at what city government does, how it works, and most importantly, the public servants who make it all happen. We're so thrilled that you've joined us today for our first episode. So first of all, welcome to all of you. And I'm also thrilled to be joined by my terrific co-host, Belinda French. Welcome, Belinda.
1: Hi, Nick. Welcome. Thank you. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So I am really excited about the topic of today's podcast. So I wanna waste no time jumping into this. Um, When I was thinking about what we could discuss uh, for this first podcast, there was one thing that stood out head and shoulders above the rest. And it was the heroic work our city did in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Here at DCAS, one of the crucial roles that we played was to purchase the masks, ventilators, and other supplies and equipment that helped our city navigate this crisis. Um, We'll also talk about some of the heroic work that was done setting up COVID field hospitals, the city's network of COVID testing sites, building a PPE stockpile, and standing up the city's COVID vaccination sites. Um, We have two really incredible guests who have done amazing work to help the city get through this pandemic. Um, The first is our DCAS's own Adam Buchanan, who serves as our agency's chief contracting officer. So welcome, Adam. Nice to be here, Nick and Belinda. Thank you. And we're also joined by the newly appointed Commissioner of the New York City Department of Design and Construction, Jamie Torres-Springer. Thanks for uh, joining us, Commissioner.
2: Thanks, Nick and Melinda. Pleasure to be here for the inaugural episode.
0: (laughs) Very glad to have you. So I want to start off with a question to both of you guys. Um, So take us back to early last year when it was clear the pandemic was coming our way. And what it was like when it eventually arrived. Um, obviously, so much was unknown, and New York City was the first major city hit, so there was no blueprint for something like this. Um, tell us a little bit about your role and what it was like when you first started working on COVID response efforts, um, Adam. I'll let you kick us off.
3: All right. Um, so, you know, I re- I really the thing that sticks out in my mind the most is I remember being at uh, a friend of mine's. Daughter's fourth birthday party, and it was on a Saturday. It was early in March, and I just remember being on the phone all uh, the entire, throughout the entire party. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to hang out with my friends. I didn't get a chance to even eat any cake. It was, um, it 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 was it was crazy. And then, and then, you know, when I started thinking about it some more, I remember that prior week, I you know, I take the train home from the city. And, uh, you know, you're used to seeing the same faces and I realized that I was seeing people that I didn't recognize. And it was just because I was leaving the office later and later. And, uh, it was just, you know, from, from our perspective, it was just becoming really, really difficult to get the things that we needed every, you know, we, we have lots of different requirements, contracts on the books, and, um, we just couldn't. Nobody could provide us any timelines or or, or any information on when they were going to be able to provide us with the various things that we needed to to start kind of mustering a response to the to the pandemic, and I, and I just I, I just remember thinking, well, this is this is really not good, and uh, but I was thinking that it was you know it was going to be pretty temporary, and it turned out that that was just the very the very 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 beginning of it, and it just continued to get worse from there.
0: Yeah. And and Jamie, you have you've worn many hats throughout this pandemic. So tell us a little bit about your work and what it was like for you in those early days. Sure. Um, You
2: know, I I should start by just um, uh, explaining what the Department of Design and Construction does. We're the city's public works agency. Um, We do about two billion dollars a year uh, worth of major capital work across the five boroughs. We build the streets and the sidewalks uh, people walk on, the plazas and the parks people spend time in, the pipes people get their drinking water from, uh, the stormwater and wastewater systems that manage those important aspects of our lives. And plus, uh, we build all the public facilities from firehouses to libraries to cultural facilities um, to you know b- big stuff like the project to reinvent the city's jail system and close Rikers. Um, so, you know, this is all really essential work, um, but, uh, during, you know, once we shut down last March, according to the governor and mayor's executive orders, uh, it was only really the streets and the sewer work, which is, uh, which is real essential work and life safety projects that were able to continue. So um, there was a lot that happened for our agency in a very short period of time. Obviously, we had to learn how to work remotely remotely. Um, which is a challenge in an agency, particularly where, you know, it's not. um, this is not an agency where everybody's sitting around at a desk, uh, you know, using their phone. Um, These are people who are used to being out in the field. They're skilled engineers and architects and construction managers. Um, So very complicated trying to figure out how to get to remote work.
3: Um,
2: And then we had to shut down a lot of projects uh, safely so that we could restart them later. That was extremely challenging. Also, for the projects that kept going, those essential projects, we had to introduce a whole series of new safety protocols. And those were really invented from whole cloth uh, to deal with the spread of, you know, the the infectious disease that we knew so little about. So a very challenging time. And then in addition, as we'll talk about today, we were very quickly called on to do a lot of emergency building work. Um, And I just want to emphasize at the outset that Um, We did this under a state of emergency. And uh, although that was very challenging, it's also been very revealing in terms of how much better we can do government procurement and contracting, save time and money, uh, while still delivering on all of our goals, uh, when, uh, you know, the handcuffs are off, so to speak, and we're able to act nimbly.
1: Absolutely. I actually, you know, Adam, you touched upon this already, but As the pandemic approached it, it really became clear we needed masks, ventilators, medical gowns, and other supplies, but really in enormous quantities, well beyond what existing vendors could handle. What was it like to have to, you know, search for these items, compete with the rest of the world, all while the supply chains were collapsing in a muddled federal response? Did it seem impossible at the time?
3: It became clear very early on that there was going to be, you know, this is back in March 2020, there was going to be no coordinated federal response, at least in the beginning when it came to PPE. Um, You know, they were, the the federal government was very slow in in invoking the Defense Production Act, uh, which is a piece of legislation that allows the federal government to essentially nationalize various private industry in order to respond to uh, national emergency, which this certainly was. Um, and, you know, we found out that that companies were being permitted to ship PPE out of the United States in the beginning of the pandemic. That was very troubling to find out. And so, we were in the wilderness in the beginning. Um, everybody that we talked to was unable to provide us firm timelines. They were unable to provide us uh, PPE in the quantity that we needed and um, no one could guarantee anything. And then on top of all of that, people wanted cash uh, prepayments and they wanted, and, and that's something that the city has never done with goods up until this point. So here we were, we couldn't, we couldn't get any guarantees, we couldn't get any vendors to, 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 to give us ship dates and they were all asking for cash upfront some vendors wouldn't even let us uh into their warehouses to confirm the existence of the pbe prior to sending you know and, and requesting cash at the same time so it turned into you know what what is usually a very orderly and i think as jamie mentioned and it's a fair point you know it's a little bit of a bureaucratic system um but you know a lot of those regulations are in place for for good reason or Something happened in the past that required a regulation in the future. And some of our procurements take longer than, you know, than necessary. It just completely, everything went out the window. Adam, this really reminds me, a a lot of people seem to have this mindset
0: that buying this stuff is like shopping on Amazon. You place your order, it gets shipped out, it arrives quickly, and everybody's happy. And in many cases, I remember, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, the the manufacturing couldn't keep up with demand. Uh, in those early days, and there were enormous backlogs in shipping, and sometimes govern- foreign governments were interfering. Tell us a little bit about how that worked and some of the challenges you faced there and sort of how people's, in the public, their perception might differ from what the reality
3: is and was. Sure. So, you know, when when you order things from Amazon, um, you know, you're used to paying a price and 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 everything is built into that price. Um you know, you're paying five dollars for whatever it is, and then that thing shows up at your door, and that's normally how you know government procurement kind of operates, right? It's like, um, you know, we want an all-in price. We 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 don't want to know about uh, the freight logistics that are required to get it to our doorstep. We don't want to know about anything about that. But then in the pandemic, it was. It changed from you know, there was there was very little manufacturing going on in the United States. So we had to look overseas, and none of these companies could get their things through customs. Um, so it went from us paying one price to get something to our door to we had to develop relationships overseas with uh, companies in China and Vietnam and India and all over the world. And all they were willing to do was sell us the PPE, but that was it. Um, So, you know, we had to get boots on the ground over there to go inspect it at their factory. And then we had to create our own freight forwarding operation. So the the goods are being manufactured in China and you got to get them over to the United States. And so another thing the city typically doesn't do is, we're not the importer of record. So when things are coming in from outside of the United States, they you know it says Acme company on it or whatever and then that it gets inspected by um custom you know it gets inspected by customs in due course and there was just a tremendous backlog at at, at the border and so the decision was made very early on and and this was really ended up being a, an incredibly important decision that the city should become the importer of records so what that meant was uh, we were handling um, from door to door, getting the goods from point A to point B. So we were chartering the plane to bring it from China to the United States. And it had our name on it when it got to, when it got to the various ports, whether it was the, you know, the port of New York or was the port of New Jersey. And um, so, so instead of having Acme on it, it had the city of New York on it. So it, it started moving things through customs much more quickly. And, um, but, but doing all that, it was so far out of our comfort zone. Uh, it was just, it it was, it it was really, it, it was, it was crazy. It was really crazy.
1: In addition to the goods, you know, one of the earlier memories for most New Yorkers of the pandemic was field hospitals. And so Jamie, uh, you know, I remember just the fear of that our hospitals were getting filled up. And that essentially we had to create field hospitals and care for people in tents. And so I know you helped oversee the city's field hospital rollout. What did that entail? Not only the work and logistics of something so enormous, but also I can imagine the fear and pressure you must have felt.
3: Um.
2: Yes. I mean, I, I do want to say that the, the fear and pressure um, was really on the front line, people that were doing the work and were the, you know, the real heroes, but we're, we, you know, it is a very uh, good example of, uh, like the example Adam gave of the early PPE efforts, just needing to scramble, figure out something brand new in a very short period of time, but a time of great uncertainty. Um, in fact, you know, I'll get into it, but I, but I, Uh, One thing I remember very viscerally was going to a site visit in the field uh, for one of the field hospitals uh, being the first time that anybody was wearing a mask Um, and sort of, uh, you know, all of a sudden we all needed to understand that we we had to wear masks. I mean, it was really the first time Uh, and we were doing it while we were building these enormous facilities. Um, So uh, you're you're right, Belinda. I mean, we have in the city, we have about 20,000 staffed hospital beds in New York City. And uh, about 2,600 of those are ICU beds, right, for you know, intensive care uh, for someone that is in distress, um, usually requires uh, assistance to breathe. Um, and there was a peak projection that we had in March that we would need something like twice that. Um, in the end, uh, for a lot of reasons that everybody's discussed, you know, we ended up being just down to the wire, something like uh, down to just having 10% uh, of the beds available, both the hospital beds and the ICU beds. But we were really scrambling uh, to make sure that we were able to put both con- both uh, hospital beds and ICU beds in place to give ourselves additional capacity. And I, I just want to say, you know, I've learned a lot about uh, working with our healthcare partners over the last year. We didn't want to put people in tents um, because you know it's this is real acute care that we needed to give people. One example is, and we just think about the magnitude of this effort. Um, we needed to put hard-piped oxygen into these field hospitals. You know, not just have you know sort of oxygen canisters around. We we decided that we really needed hard-piped oxygen, and that's a tremendous. that's really building a building and outfitting it with modern. Um, high-quality healthcare technology. So, as you say, I mean, we, we were able to do that. We mobilized an emergency team. Uh, we were able to design and build the two facilities uh, in about 11 days. Uh, one was at Billie Jean King Tennis Center uh, in Queens. Um, uh, we did open that uh, facility uh, after 11 days, and they've had patients in it. We also fully built out the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal uh, on the Brooklyn waterfront, uh, with, uh, with 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 field with field hospital beds, fortunately, we didn't end up needing to open that one, which was a real relief. Um, but we were ready to open it, and I think everyone's seen the images of these. These were amazing facilities uh, operationally. Uh, we also brought in people don't know this clinical staff, nurses and doctors from all over the country because New York City was the epicenter of the crisis, and we were able to bring in clinicians from all over the country to staff the hospital. So it was really an amazing effort. I will also say um, an early memory of mine from before uh, the the epidemic or the pandemic became acute in North America was we saw um, uh, a field hospital being built in Wuhan, China, uh, probably in February, uh, when you know they were really in the midst of their peak in Wuhan. And I remember seeing a video of it getting built out, and everybody saying, "Wow, we could never build out a field hospital." In the United States, in ten days, I hope we re- I really hope we don't have to do that. But you know, it turned out that actually we were able to build ours in eleven days. And as I said earlier, um, it's because we were working in an emergency and able to take advantage of these uh, these tools and the less constrained uh, approach to procurement. We're able to do our procurement in twenty four hours register an emergency contract immediately without a huge amount of uh, extra review by the comptroller and others. Uh, Most importantly, we were able to use an integrated design, construction, and construction management team so we didn't suffer from the usual handoffs that you get where, in our system uh, of building capital projects, we normally have to fully design a project uh, over here in one silo and then hand it off to the construction folks over in another silo, um, and we just lose a tremendous amount of time. Um, You know, Last thing I'll just mention that, um, in addition to those skilled hospitals, we've subsequently built out three post-COVID acute care centers for the Health and Hospitals Corporation in the Bronx, Queens, and Brooklyn. These are permanent facilities that we built in six months when it would normally have taken six years, and we brought them in under budget uh, we're able to use high, um, uh, achieve high ratios of minority and women business enterprise utilization. Real success stories, and so lots of lessons to be learned from this experience.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, Jamie, I, I I couldn't agree more. And and really, what gave us the tools to 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 do what we needed to get done was was the mayor's emergency executive order. Um, you know. The piece that was most impacting what we do was the lifting of all the of all the various hoops that we have to jump through when we're doing procurement, and so um, like Jamie mentioned, I mean, some of the, you know, if I were to put out a bid for masks, it would usually take me four months at least, and we were doing four months of worth of work in a twenty-four to forty-eight hour period, and we were working. You know, it, it, it was just a complete deluge. We were. We were drinking from the fire hose every, every 100 or a or, or few hundred offers we got would produce maybe one um, substantial lead. You know, there were, there were, there were people who were out there who were, you know, dipping their toe in the water for the first time for PPE and sounded very, very official. And we had to sort through those people who ultimately really couldn't deliver. There were a lot of, you know, fraudsters out there, um, and it was just, it, everybody Want I, I think a lot, the vast majority of them had their heart in the right place and they just couldn't deliver what they were promising. And, um, you know, we got, we got really, really lucky. And, you know, I mentioned the prepayment before, but the prepayment ended up being uh, a smaller piece of our portfolio than I think a lot of people realize. Um, what we were doing in a lot of instances is we were signing contracts with 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 vendors that were that were ultimately pretty similar to what our normal contract would be, so um, it ended up being very low risk for the city. So we were signing contract with terms basically: if you are able to deliver what you say you're going to deliver in the time frame that you're going to deliver it, you're going to get paid. And this contract is backed by the full faith and credit of the City of New York. And you know, we turned down a lot of vendors that were, were that were requesting prepayment, and ultimately a lot of them did business with us, and a lot of them were able to deliver what they said that they were gonna deliver and they got paid. And a lot of them weren't able to deliver. And it was really low risk for us because if they weren't able to deliver, we had very strong termination for convenience provisions in our contracts. And we were just able to say, okay, no harm, no foul. You know, you you said you were gonna deliver this and you couldn't do it. And we're just gonna, we're both gonna go our separate ways. And um, the city ended up losing an extremely little amount of money over the entire pandemic, uh, you know, considering the amount of money that we ended up spending, which I believe is close to $1.2 billion in PPE and ventilators. And Adam, you guys, you not only had
0: this deluge of incoming that you were dealing with, but, you know, in those early days, there was such urgency to find these supplies and equipment that you guys had to cold call unfamiliar people on the other side of the world, you know, looking every anywhere and everywhere you could under every rock to to find this stuff. Um, how did you get through that? I mean, not just professionally having to undertake all of that, but I mean, you're public servants, you and your team, and you're here to help your fellow New Yorkers. But just on a personal level, I mean, this had to be
3: unimaginable. I mean, it was. You know, I, I think it, it, it was. It was crazy. You know, the, the, one of the hardest parts about the pandemic was the fact that. Um, just as we're getting ready to wind down uh, out here on the East coast of the United States, China is waking up and, um, you know, for better or for worse, the vast majority of, of, of the world's manufacturing is based in China. So, um, we were, uh, we found ourselves frequently on the phone at all hours of the night with various Chinese entities because that was their work day. And um, so you know, my team worked incredibly long hours. Um, you know, th- this was you know this was their this was their call to arms, um, and they really stepped up. As Jamie mentioned before, that we were all working remote. You know, we're used to you know we're used to being able to convene and have and and have public bid openings, and all that went out the window. And one of the, the most unbelievable parts of, of, of this was, so DCAS also runs what's called, what's called the city's central storehouse. And that holds all sorts of different things that the city needs to function. It holds paper, it holds cleaning supplies, it holds backup generators, it holds blankets uh, for, for, for emergency weather events. But during the pandemic, the, the central storehouse went from holding all those things to needing to hold all the PPE and the hand sanitizer, which is flammable, by the way. Um, so that needs to go in a special room. Uh, so normally the central storehouse has about $5 million worth of inventory on hand. And in any given year, they process about $25 million worth of orders during the pandemic. We had up to $300 million worth of inventory on hand. And again, DCAS ultimately processed $1.2 billion worth of contracts. And Unbelievable. I mean, it must've been 24 hours. It was, it, it, the storehouse never closed during those first few months, um, only to do inventory counts. And, uh, you know, the, the folks that work at the storehouse are, are, are some of the real heroes of this pandemic. They were working in, in indoors. They were working, um, they were working before the vaccine was created. They were working when we knew very little about this virus and they were working with, um, you know, the best PBE that, that we could supply them with. Uh, but, you know, the fact that they were working 24 seven was just unbelievable. And a lot of kudos also deserves to go to DCAS's Bureau of Quality Assurance. Um, so under normal, under normal circumstances in procurement, Like I like I had mentioned earlier, everything gets inspected by our bureau of quality assurance, and then not until they give the not until they 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 give the sign off um, is is the PPE uh, or is is, excuse me is the are the goods accepted, and then and then we can have the vendor invoice us. So in this circumstance, DCAS is not used to buying PPE and ventilators. Um, Typically, under normal circumstances, hospitals buy ventilators hospitals buy buy PPE for themselves. And uh, we only got drafted into this situation because the hospitals were quite busy. And um, so our Bureau of Quality Assurance had to basically stand up. uh, They had to familiarize themselves with how to make sure that the PPE and the ventilators and everything else that we were getting was of high quality and could go out to the city of New York writ large, whether it be the public or the hospitals or the fire department or the police department. And I just wanna pull this stat real quick. So they had, so, so and, and part of that process is getting samples from vendors before they actually ship us a million masks. We wanted to see, you know, you wanna see samples. And so BQA did such a good job of inspecting the samples and giving the thumbs up or the thumbs down that they had less than a 1% rejection rate on all that PPE that we bought, which means that they did a fantastic job on the front end, making sure that the samples that we were getting were were what was written into the contract. And the staff did such an amazing job creating these contracts where the vendors were delivering what they said that they were going to deliver. And it just it, 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 it blows my mind that they had only a one percent uh, rejection rate because that's just it, it was so it, the work that they did on the front end really saved so much time and money and resources and a million other things on the back end. It was it, it was unbelievable.
1: You know, um, the, the, I'm pausing because the, the question I'm about to ask, we're in a different time now and we're talking about vaccines. But I can remember a time when we were talking about tests, COVID tests. And so I, you know, in addition to the field hospitals, you know, I want to ask you, Jamie, about setting up the COVID testing sites at that time. And a challenge that must have been, because I remember at that time, tests were still being developed, supply was really low, and just Uh, The reliability of the tests themselves, um, you know, many New Yorkers were talking about. So how did you sort of with all this, uh, find the right way to set up these COVID testing sites? And, you know, if you can talk to if there was any doubt or uncertainty at that time?
2: Yeah, you're right, Belinda. Um, it's sort of, again, hard to get us back into that mental space um, where, you know, now getting tested for COVID is such a part of uh, everybody's normal life where you go line up, uh, you know, at an urgent care facility and you go to one of the city's sites, um, you know, some people order them from Amazon at this point, or there's a saliva test. Um, but you know, in April of 2020, access to COVID testing and the turnaround times to receive results were very unpredictable, and sometimes people were waiting two weeks to receive their results, which effectively, you know, made them useless, um, other than for epidemiological uh, tracking, um, but not for tracing for sure. Actually, part of the reason was that uh, there were various testing locations, but they had to use pooled lab resources to process the specimens that they were collecting because there wasn't enough lab capacity to analyze specimens. So, uh, we at, at, you know, at DDC, um, uh, you know, the amazing uh, folks that, that work at our agency stepped up, helped build out, first of all, five lab locations uh, in partnership with the health department and something we have in New York City called the Public Health Lab, which is this amazing capacity we have Um, As a result of building up those labs, we were able to ensure, you know, what we now all now know PCR results within 24 to 48 hours. Um, And, you know, we did it by we ordered this very specific specimen analysis, uh, analysis equipment immediately. And we had a two month lead time while the Uh, Equipment was coming. Uh, We built the sites out during those two months. And then once in place, we were able to process more than 7,000 PCR tests per day with that 24 to 48 hour turnaround. And, you know, I will say, I think, you know, Adam was probably involved in some of this. There was a point when um, we were actually sort of doing technical assistance calls with other cities. And I remember at some point in the summer, um, talking to uh, maybe I shouldn't say wh- you know where they were, but folks in a major U.S. city who were still ta- it was still taking two weeks to get a PCR test result back, and you know just realized that um, this sort of amazing vision. And I really I do have to credit the test and trace uh, operation that was set up, was particularly run by Dr. Ted Long and Jackie Bray um, at the city you know, just absolutely identified what the problem was going to be, where the bottleneck was going to be, and, you know, went and had us, you know, build out the labs. And it just transformed the way that we were able to test and trace in New York City. And nobody had that capacity across the country. I, I will say we also helped stand up 28 specimen collection sites for test and trace, and 20 of those are still in operation today. Um, So really, again, it's a a great example of knowledgeable public health professionals and construction professionals coming together to get the projects done very quickly.
0: This is a question for both of you, but Jamie, I'll start with you. Um, you One of the crucial roles you played during the pandemic response was also building out the city's PPE stockpile. And as we've discussed, it was tough enough just to keep up with the current demand. Um, how did you approach going beyond that and, and building a stockpile? Um, I'm sure that was incredibly difficult in those earliest days. Um, and I'm sure it was tough to know how high are the case counts going to go? You know, how long is this crisis going to go on? You know, what were some of the things that you thought through in approaching that and and uh, making this all happen? Right. Yeah. So,
2: Adam's talked about this first phase of the PPE challenge, which was just, you know, go and find it in a container somewhere and get it, you know, take possession of it overseas and land the plane and get it to a hospital so that a nurse has an N95 to wear that day. Um, And that, you know, that was an amazing effort. Um, I think, you know, I was privileged to work with DCAS and a whole bunch of other agencies across the government, on the second phase of the PPE challenge, which was um, the mayor directed us to establish a medical PPE service center that could supply the entire healthcare sector of the city with peak volumes of PPE from the spring. In other words, you know, how much PPE we were using each day during that spring peak, we wanted to have a full 90 days of that in a warehouse that we controlled. And also to meet ventilation needs that we might have because we were very short on ventilators in the spring, as, as everyone probably remembers. So, you know, that that was, this was a whole effort to make sure that we were prepared for a future resurgence across the entire system. Um, we worked with the health department and others to set target stockpile figures, again, based on analysis of how much the system was using in the spring. We had to make adjustments because we know there was conservation that took place, right? We heard all these stories of people didn't have N95s, that they could uh, change in and out of. So we had to adjust our figure, make sure we were buying enough, And then we went out and got it. And I really, of course, credit Adam and his team. Uh, you know, DCAS did the hard work around this. Uh, but we've stockpiled a dozen categories of critical items uh, in addition to a whole lot of ventilators. Uh, just to give you the sense of the magnitude, 13 and a half million N95 masks, 37 million level three hospital grade isolation gowns, 54 million three-ply surgical masks, 185 million nitrile gloves, 900,000 pairs of goggles, and 6 million face shields. Um, So we have that uh, in our service center. It's at a secure location. The stockpile is exclusively controlled by the city of New York. We've established accounts and trained over 1,000 healthcare providers in a secure ordering system who can fulfill any PPE order within one business day. So you talked about you talked about Amazon uh, earlier on, Nick. We, you know, we we have really uh, created a service center that that can serve the healthcare sector uh, like Amazon can within one business day when they have a need, and that's a huge resource that we've created for for the city for the future.
0: And and you guys did it on the fly, you know, from scratch. I mean, it's really incredible the work that you guys did. Um, and I guess tying into this, Adam, um, you know, you guys had a role not only in building that, getting the initial supply, but also in building the stockpile. Did it get easier over time to to find the things that you needed? And what, what were some of the challenges you continued to face as the year went on
3: last year? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think as with anything, the beginning is kind of where I have the most PTSD and um and 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 we got significantly better at this as time went on. so as Jamie mentioned, and it was really wonderful to work with Jamie and Dan Simon, who's the city's chief contracting officer um and, and in in establishing this medical PPE stockpile. so those first couple of months were really touch and go. We were trying to find it wherever we could find it, and then we started to um work directly with the companies in China, so You know, and that that required several different procurements to be set up. So you'd have to do the procurement for the PPE itself. You'd have to do a procurement for the inspection services in China because China was still very restrictive in who was allowing to inspect factories in China and and the like. Then we had to have a freight forwarding operation set up to move the goods from China to the United States. So it was we we got significantly better. It was a lot of trial and error um, and and a lot of, you know. One of the amazing things about the emergency executive order was that it did remove all the constraints that we're normally under when we do procurements. And the problem, the problem with that was we had to create a process because we couldn't just you know, go willy-nilly wherever we wanted. So we had to stand up a process and then we had to be willing to modify it and tweak it and tear it down and rebuild it again. And, um, it's just a testament really to all the people that we worked with that they were so flexible and so creative. I mean, we created this whole emergency pandemic procurement system and medical PPE stockpile out of, you know, out of thin air. Um, and, and and we're able to ultimately, as Jamie just ticked off all those unbelievable stats, uh, all the things that we have to prepare us, uh, to prepare us for, for any possible, you know, anything that comes down the road that's going to require PPE, um, we're, we're going to be ready for it, at least from that, from that perspective.
1: You know, speaking to that, um, you know, Nick, you, you asked Adam to take you through, has it gotten easier? And, you know, my question is for, for Jamie, you know, we talked about field hospitals, we talked about COVID testing sites. And so at present, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about our vaccination sites. And I know that the city of New York has one of the best networks of vaccination sites, including, you know, Yankee Stadium and and, and Citi Field. But sort of, you know, wanted to ask you, what was the toughest part about standing these up, um, even when, you know, and maybe this is still going on? Uh, the vaccine supply. You know, we weren't sure if it was keeping up with demand. So if you could talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, you know, again, a, a, another truly uh, extraordinary phase of all of this. Um, and I, I've been sort uh, of work doing some double duty. I've been uh, part of the mayor's vaccine command center for the last couple of months, which is this truly heroic effort um, led by uh, you know professionals from de- you know deputy mayors, um, you know agency professionals from uh, the emergency management, the health department, uh, health and hospitals, um, really you know pull- pulled from agencies across government, um, which is it's it's an effort to coordinate the effort of all of these providers and many other entities, um, not just to prepare to vaccinate the population of the city. But to, the, you know, the hard part, um, it's all hard, but to ensure that we're communicating uh, across the city uh, in the right ways, that the vaccines that we have access to are safe and effective and uh, encouraging all New Yorkers to get them so that we can get the city back on its feet. And there's a lot of reasons. We all we all read about this, um, that there's some hesitancy about there out there. Uh, amongst uh, you know, different folks and different populations, but um, we've really got this obligation to communicate to people the vaccines are safe and effective. Um, and that's been happening. Uh, in terms of the, the, the physical vaccination centers themselves, you know you're right, Belinda, we went from uh, a period when demand far exceeded supply um, to uh, what we what we hope and we really are confident is now uh, where supply is equal to demand um or you know exceeds demand and that's where we again we have to overcome hesitancy and make sure everybody's out there getting their vaccine so um in the initial period there's an amazing amount of work that's been done to manage that limited supply but ensure an equitable distribution of the vaccine creating this uh this vax uh, appointment system which centralized appointments uh, I know everybody loves to talk about turbovax and and uh, and bots but The bot needs something to crawl through and that's the system that, uh, you know, Commissioner Tish at DOIT, the the information technology agency created from scratch to centralize most of the appointments in the city. Um, Also, you know, a big effort during that period to ensure that eligibility criteria were being met um, without, uh, you know, dissuading anyone who should be vaccinated from getting the vaccine and then getting the vaccine appointments out to communities in need. And now where we are is we have almost built out the capacity, I don't think we've talked about this uh, too much, to vaccinate 600,000 New Yorkers per week uh, or deliver 600,000 vaccine doses per week. And we did that by you know, the mega sites that you mentioned, um, but also... Uh, the health department sites, which were all stood up in high schools uh, and middle schools across the city. Well, we've actually moved most of those in the last few weeks so that middle schools and high schools could go back. Um, and uh, we have then uh, identified neighborhoods. We have a task force on racial inclusion and equity um, that the mayor created that identified neighborhoods, 33 neighborhoods that were uh, most in need, most impacted by the pandemic. Uh, and we've gone through and we've uh, located um, vaccination centers in uh, in accessible to all of those areas. We've built out almost thirty sites across New York City uh, in the last month. Um, and it's just again been an extraordinary effort. Uh, and then also uh, a lot of work happening to reach hard to reach populations um, through you know a homebound initiative, working with community-based organizations. uh uh, establishing pop-up and temporary sites at churches and other houses of worship so it's really it's not just going and building out yankee stadium um although that was great and it was also very complicated because then the yankees came back to play and we had to make sure we accommodated that but it's also making sure that we're in every neighborhood of the city Um, so that people can go somewhere where they're comfortable to get their vaccine. And I think we're in a very good position to hit the targets we've set uh, to vaccinate the population by the summer.
0: So just one final question that I have, uh, I guess I'll pose to both of you, but so much of what incredible public servants like you and the people you work with, it it goes unnoticed and it really, the, the work happens behind the scenes what is something you think ordinary New Yorkers should know about this work that they might not know? And do you have any lessons that have been uh, learned along the way? I guess, Jamie, I'll start with you.
2: Well, I think, I think we've said a lot. I mean, I, the thing I would emphasize the most is, um, I guess, two, you know, two things. The first is, as you said, just how, you know, tireless, uh, extraordinary public servants have been throughout this pandemic. I know, a lo- you know, a lot of we all have sort of, you know, lives and with families in the city. We know a lot of people have struggled through uh, being at, stuck at home, uh, you know, n- not having enough to do, you know, being bored. I mean, they, you know, there's a lot of sort of stuff you read about on social media. That's not the challenge that public servants in New York City have gone through. It's been being on the front lines, being essential workers. And, you know, um, just, you know, just protecting people and keeping them safe and getting the city back up and running. And people have done it tirelessly, including at, at our agency, at the Department of Design and Construction, where people have just been uh, extraordinary. The, the other thing, again, I just want to emphasize, you know, there's ways that we've been able to act. I'm sure Adam has this reflection, too, about DCAS's work that um, we're not able to normally, uh, you know, ways that we're not able to normally uh, work. That we have used during the pandemic to deliver, and we should be able to take lessons from that and change laws and change regulations so that the city can deliver that way all the time. And I really hope that people will take that message and and help us to make those changes so that we uh, can put the city in a better position long term as well.
3: And Adam, what are some of yeah. your lessons learned? Yeah. So you know, I think I think Jamie really said that very well. Um, my big, I think my biggest takeaway from, from this was how much we need to incentivize American manufacturing, because uh, when I have to get something shipped here from Michigan, as opposed to from China or from Vietnam in the middle of an emergency, um, it just makes it significantly easier uh, to, 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 to respond to that emergency. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, I'm, I'm just a procurement guy. Um, you know it's the people like Jamie and 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 the healthcare and the healthcare folks and the firefighters and and all those people they tell us what they need and it's my job to just get them what they need uh, us buying PPE in and of itself is not necessarily the most heroic thing in the world but if we can get that PPE to the to the EMT who needs it or to the hospital worker who needs it or you know out to the nursing homes or just get it out to the front lines as quickly as possible, and and make sure that what they were getting was quality product. Um, that was that, that was what we that was what we tried our best to do. And uh, but yeah, you know, for the for the biggest lesson learned for me was, you know, in addition to what Jamie said, of course, a lot of these procurement rules are silly and um it shouldn't take me 4 months to buy masks under normal circumstances uh i think we showed quite an ability to buy things and safeguard the, the taxpayer's money in an extremely high stress environment and we did it without you know sacrificing uh much at all so you know but but in addition to that any any kind of you know any kind of incentivizing that we can do to buy american it's got to get done because you know we're going to be in the same position here uh Five years from now if we don't if we don't change something uh where we're scrambling and trying to deal with companies all over the world as opposed to dealing with them with with companies here in the United States. I really want to thank both of you guys, uh, you know, not only for,
0: you know, the the interview today and the really helpful conversation that I hope gives people a behind the scenes look at at what happened during the COVID uh, response efforts. But just for being the public servants that you are, um, you know, I I've, I do press for DCAS is one of the hats that I wear and I see some of the bad press where people get beat up for the stuff that they do. But to, to, to work with you guys, to see behind the scenes, the sacrifices that you're making, the hours that you're working, you know, what you're going through on a personal and professional level, um, it, you know, you deserve all of the credit in, in the world. Um, you know, our, our first responders, our medical professionals, they get, you know, their, their recognition that they justly deserve. But there are so many other public servants who fly under the radar who do incredible work. And you too and your teams are definitely among them. So, so thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Nick.
3: Thank you, thanks, thank you for putting this together. This was great. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Belinda, and thanks, uh, Commissioner, for uh, for 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 everything. It's been it's been a hell of a year. Um, yeah. Thanks for everything. Yeah. Uh, thanks, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening to Inside Citywide, a podcast brought to you by the New York City Department of Citywide Administrative Services. To learn more about DCAS, visit our website at nyc.gov slash dcas.